we don't know what kind of difficulties we're going to face in this life. We don't know when they're going to appear. We don't know how deep and how difficult they're going to be. We don't know what the future holds for us. In fact, the Bible teaches us that we don't even know what tomorrow holds for us. And the, diff- and the problem with so much uncertainty is that uncertainty, at least in my own life, I've found often breeds fear. We are often more afraid of what we don't know than what we know. Am I going to be able to keep this job? Or, or am I going to be able to pay these bills? And Am I going to find a wife? Uh, What is it going to be like when either Hillary Clinton or the Donald becomes president of the United States, right? I mean, talking about uncertainty and fear, um, these things begin to well up inside of us. And this is why we have, in our modern vernacular, we have come to coin the phrase, uh, the fear of the unknown. It's not the fear of the known, it's the fear of the unknown. Well, Paul, while he's writing this letter was in a place of uncertainty for at least a period of of two years. He's not sure what's going to happen. He's he's got kind of a feeling, if you will, he kind of knows, but for the most part he doesn't know. He doesn't know if this trial that he's going to have before Caesar soon, he doesn't even know when that's going to be, if it is going to deliver him from his state of, of, of prison if he's going to remain in prison, or if it might ultimately even lead to his death. He's completely uncertain about that. But, but what's amazing is, in the midst of a sea of uncertainty, the man doesn't show even a glimmer of fear. All he shows is joy, and he's rejoicing. Now, how does Paul do that? How does he, in the midst of difficulty, how does he, how does he in the midst of suffering for righteousness' sake, that's the context that we've been talking about, especially, especially last week, how is he able to not live with uncertainty in fear? How is he able to, to live with joy and maintaining the joy of his life? Well, he does it by focusing not on what is uncertain, but focusing on what is certain. Now, if you were with us last week, we saw this within the context of chapter 1, um, we, we saw that Paul, even though he was being shamed by others that apparently were supposed to be for him, other believers in Jesus Christ, he himself did not, he was in a place of uncertainty. He didn't allow that to affect him to steal his joy. Instead, he remained joyful. Why? Because he says, because he knew that whether those enemies preached the gospel from the right motivation or wrong motivation, He knew that Christ himself would be proclaimed and therefore he would rejoice. So you get it. In the midst of uncertainty, he's rejoicing because of what he knew to be true. Now that's true for Paul in his past and in his present. But what we see in this text, it's also going to be true for the future. He's uncertain what's going to happen to him. He's in the midst of difficulty. He doesn't know if this thing is going to get better or if this thing is ultimately going to get worse But instead of getting wrapped up with the uncertainties, he sets his mind and his heart on what is certain for him. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, when we do that, we maintain joy. Listen, I I know in this place, in your lives, in my life, there's great uncertainty. I know right now, even speaking this, somebody told me just even this last week, they just mentioned, they go, you know, sometimes when you're preaching, I feel like you're like reading our mail or eavesdropping or doing something like that. But that's, that's the word of God. Yes. 
And, and these are universal truths. I, I don't care who you are, what stage of life, there's uncertainty in your life. And, and many of you might be in fear because of that uncertainty this morning. It might be about your marriage. You don't know which way this thing is going to go. It might be your children. You're not sure what, what's going to happen. Are they going to rebel? Are they going to become right with God? What's going to happen with all of this? It could be so many different things that you're just uncertain about and you're worried about. And what I want to let you know is that's not where God wants you to be. He doesn't want you to be in the midst of a, 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 a fear, in the midst of uncertainty. And that's the beautiful part of God. And it's a beautiful part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that God doesn't have to rescue us out of all uncertainty and all difficulty for us to have joy. The power of the gospel is that we can be in the midst of the greatest, darkest uncertainty and difficult. And still have the joy of Jesus Christ. How? The same way Paul does. By focusing more on what is certain than what is uncertain. So how do we do it? Well, let's take a look at what Paul knew to be true. And let us, let us identify it and apply it to our own lives. First of all, first thing we see, we see three things, or two things. By the way, two things, not three things, all right, this morning. So if you like shorter messages, I don't know if it'll be shorter, but there's a chance. There's two points and not three, okay? And we just dropped the third point this week because Dan wanted a shorter message. So... Um, so um, anyway, that's right, that's right, he says, without shame. Anyway, and so number one, here's what Paul knew, here's what we need to know. He, he was certain of our future salvation. He was sure and certain of our future salvation. Look at verse 9 with me in, in your Bibles. He says, for I know, knowing is certainty, okay? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, commentators are kind of uh, in disagreement here of what he means by deliverance. Some believe that he's referring to his impending trial before Caesar, that once he goes through the trial, he's convinced that he's going to be delivered from the difficulty that he's in. Others would suggest, no, that's not really the context. Remember, the context is uncertainty, not certainty. And even though he has kind of this idea of what might happen, he's still not clear of what actually is going to take place. So what they say is he's not speaking about his deliverance in, in this trial, that, that he is somehow going to be um, 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 relieved from this trial or acquitted from the crimes that, 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 that he's in prison for, but rather he's referring to his later and his ultimate salvation with Jesus Christ. Now, I, which one do I believe? I believe he's speaking of the latter, his ultimate salvation. Why is that? Two reasons. Number one is because of the word deliverance. The word deliverance here in the Greek is actually uh, the Greek word soterion, where most of the time it's translated in the New Testament, it's translated salvation, and it speaks of our ultimate salvation. That's the idea that I think Paul has in mind here. The second reason I believe that he's talking about his ultimate and final salvation when all is said and done and, and he's acquitted by, by, by God himself is because he's quoting from Job. Now, even though commentators disagree on the meaning of deliverance here, they agree, all agree, that he is quoting from an Old Testament passage in the book of Job, Job chapter 13 and verse 16. Remember, Job and Paul had a lot in common. 
They had people who supposedly cared about them, who were fellow believers, but yet they accused them of sin. They accused them of wrongdoing because they're in a tough time. They're in a place of uncertainty. They're suffering. But the truth of the matter is both of them are suffering, in essence, for righteousness sake. They've done nothing wrong, but they have everybody telling them that they're doing what is ultimately wrong. And so what Job does at one point, he says, and this will turn out for my deliverance. Same exact phraseology, same exact words. And what he's saying is he's not saying that he knows that he will be acquitted in in, in the court of public opinion. He's saying he knows that he will ultimately be acquitted in the courtroom of God. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul goes, I don't know what's going to happen when I get before Caesar. That's not where my hope is. It's not where my joy is. He goes, where my joy is, is at the final courtroom of God. All of this is going to come to an end, and I will be justified and made right before God. He says, it will all come out then. He says that there is an end to this. And and this is how Paul deals with it. This is how he deals with the uncertainties and the difficulties and the suffering for righteousness sake now. As he knows, and he looks ahead, and he knows that there's going to be an end. He keeps doing this through his writing. In fact, we see another example in 2 Peter chapter 4 and verse 18. He says there in the context of suffering and everything else as well, he says, the Lord will, future, will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Do you see what he does there? It's not focusing on the uncertainty, not focusing on the suffering here, but looking ahead for something much greater that's going to come and knowing that what's happening here is going to ultimately come to an end. Now, where does he get this confidence? His confidence, it's not a self-confidence, and it's not from self-sufficiency within himself. It's a, it's a confidence that comes from his faith in God himself in, in two specific ways. He, he actually says it right there. He says, for I know that through, now note two things, your prayers and the help of the Spirit. So he's confident because of the prayers of the Philippians for him and because of the help of the Holy Spirit within him. Now, we know that Paul is a man of prayer. Every one of these books, he's telling the Philippians, those at Ephesus, he's telling them, hey, I'm praying for you. But one thing we often miss is his constant request for them to pray for him. And he knows that the Philippians are praying for him, but what are they praying? They're praying that he doesn't buckle under the pressure and the persecution of Caesar, that he will remain faithful all the way to the end. And so he has confidence that he will remain confident to the end. His confidence is not in the Philippians and their ability to pray for him. His confidence is in a God who hears and answers the prayers of his people when they pray according to his will. So his confidence ultimately is not in the Philippians, but God, the one who answers prayer. And then he says here, not only is it the prayers from outside of him or for him, but it's also the Holy Spirit who is in him to help him. Paul is very aware, and we need to be far more aware that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells within you. And he is there to help and to empower and to equip and to minister. And we have to depend on the Holy Spirit every day. And he knows the Holy Spirit is there. And he knows he will be faithful to the end. Not because he believes in himself that he can do it. But he believes that God will keep him. And he will hold him. It's Paul himself who who, who says in the word of God in Ephesians 1.13 in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That, that he has been sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is the one who's holding him. 
He knows again that he's going to be able to be faithful to the day of God's judgment and found innocent before God because of his grace and his mercy. How does he know this? Not because he's holding on to God, but John 10, verse 29, Jesus said, because nobody can pluck you out of the hand of the Father. So his confidence is not in himself to, to be right and to hold on to his salvation and to do what is right. His confidence is completely in God and his ability to hold on and to be able to keep those who he has saved because of his confidence in God to hold him. He knows that all of this is going to ultimately come to an end. Listen, I said this in the beginning. Let me say it again. We are not certain about just about anything in the Christian life. We're just... We're not. We're not sure from moment to moment, from second to second, from month to month to year to year. There's just almost nothing certain at all in any of it. There's one thing that we're certain for. One thing. And that is this, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, which means he will hold us in our place of salvation, which means we are confident that one day all of this suffering, all the difficulties, all the trials, all the suffering for righteousness sake, there will be an end to it. There will be an end to it. Now, why is that so incredibly important? Well, it's important because... There is an essence of when you are able to look beyond the present difficulty to an end, and and not only an end to the suffering, but it being replaced with something far greater, the Bible says this is how we deal and we remain faithful in the midst of the uncertainty. When my wife and I were in seminary, I know you think that seminary is probably the easiest thing in the world. Uh, It's it's not. It's it's annoying, for one. because there's a lot of pastors there, and you think it's annoying to have a few, um, try 2,000, all right? It's, it's annoying because they're all leaders, and they're all trying to tell you how much they know about the Bible, and you're like, I, I can't handle this, all right? That wasn't in my notes, but it was just annoying, and, um, and sometimes that comes out. But when you're at seminary, you're, you're studying, you're taking on this coursework, and it's just an amazing amount of information. You're, you're like, okay, we're going to learn about all of Christian history, okay? And all of Greek, and all of Hebrew, and all of systematic theology, and all of church. And you go through all this stuff, and you're like, this is just an amazing amount of information. But what they do is it's not that they're just teaching it. They're going to test you on it, which was the part that I, I, I didn't sign up for, right? And I'm like, hey, I enjoy the learning, but I don't like the testing part. And so what would do is I was kind of a nerd. All my friends who were much smarter than me, they would just cram exam week, all right? We probably have, that was probably Jimmy. Jimmy's like, yeah, I'll just look at this the night before, no problem. Me, the unintelligent individual I was, I had a strategy. So two weeks before finals week, I would break up all of my notes and everything that I had to learn for a period of 14 days, and I would mark it all off as I started to make my way into exam week, all right? Now, what would happen is I hated it. I hated these 14 days. They were terrible. I was stressed out. I would get up early. I would go to bed late. I would have no life. Normally, I don't have a life anyway, but then specifically, I have no life, and I'd get through all this, and I remember getting through the first week going, I'm only halfway done, and I'm just trying to work on this, and this is not a penalty. This is suffering for righteousness' sake, and I kept thinking to myself, how am I going to get done with this? How is this going to be over? And then my wife would remind me, because what we did was we made a reward to get through it. The reward 
there was no five guys during the time. Instead, what we had was we had Fuddruckers. I don't know if you've ever been to Fuddruckers, but my wife would promise me, thank you, honey. She would say, listen, at five o'clock on Friday, we are driving down a Capitol Boulevard and we are going to get you a half pound cheddar cheeseburger, right? And you guys know my affection for cheeseburgers. And so for me, it was enough. I literally, it literally worked. I would sit there and go, oh man, I got to do this. But you know what? I know no matter what happens, Friday, whenever it comes, whether I pass or whether I fail these exams, I will be sucking down that half pound cheeseburger, right? I knew that it was going to happen. And it's the strangest thing, but it was true that by looking forward to something greater to come and something else that's very difficult, knowing that it was going to come and end, it helped me to be more faithful in what it was that I was ultimately doing. And so this is true. Paul is ultimately saying, hey, listen, the reason you can get through what you're going through, the reason you can continue to do what is right and suffer for righteousness sake, or you can continue to get through suffering that you've brought upon your own self because of your sin, even though you've been forgiven of it, is because you know it's coming to an end and it's got to be replaced with something far greater than a cheeseburger. Far greater than a cheeseburger. You will come to a point that you will no longer struggle with sin again. You will no longer be tempted again. You will never fight against the flesh again. No evil, wicked, lustful thought, men, will ever enter your mind. You will never struggle again with, with knowing what to do and your flesh fighting against that. All of that will be wiped away. We will be made completely and fully in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. That is what we look forward to. And so there might be some, and I understand this, there might be some who sit here and say, well, Brother Mike, certainly there is more encouragement to us than just that. Certainly there is more to, to encouragement than, hey, listen, it will be better for you in heaven. Certainly, Brother Mike, I, look, I need to know my situation right now, the situation I'm in, in this relationship, in this finances, in this physical problems that I'm facing, that it is going to prove not in the life to come, but in the life now. I need to know it now. I know that, look, people will say, Mike, all you ever do when we come together is talk about Jesus, talk about spiritual things. You don't talk about anything practical. We need stuff now. And to be able to steal a line from Geico, I'm a pastor, it's what I do, all right? What we do what we should be doing is telling you about Christ by telling you about God, by telling you about the life that is ultimately coming. That's what we need to do. And let me tell you this. You can go to an evangelist on television, and I'm not one who knocks all of this, but you can go. There's false teaching there. You can go to somebody who's going to promise you that if you just have enough faith, your difficulty will end in this lifetime. It will get better. You can go and you can listen to popular guys that many Christians are reading their books and you can go to them and, and they will tell you, they will tell you in their books if you just begin to think more positive thoughts or if you just have enough faith, then you can be assured that the difficulty that you're in is going to go away. And I'm telling you, anybody who tells you that with absolute certainty is a liar. Is a liar. We pray, listen, we pray that God would deliver us from the difficulty. And God is immensely merciful. 
immensely. And we see it happen all the time. And you and I have experienced time and time again. But I'm telling you right now, if you are suffering for righteousness' sake in a marriage, in a relationship, at a job, or whatever it is, there is no promise of God that until you stand before him that that is ever going to ultimately change that suffering. It's just simply not going to change unless God decides to change it. So what do we do? We have to look forward to what ultimately is coming, to ultimately what is certain. We have to be able to understand that, listen, at the end, there is an end to this, which makes us pick ourselves up and become obedient all the more, knowing that there will be an end, and whatever is being taken away will be replaced with something infinitely greater. Yes? Second point, we're halfway, we're more than halfway done. What a Sunday, glorious Sunday. All right, here we go, number two. Certain that we will not be ashamed. That we will not be ashamed. All right, now notice what the scripture says. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not, and I love this, be at all ashamed. There's not even going to be a little inkling, not even the possibility of any kind of shame. Now, what is he talking about? Well, look at, look at the phrases here. He speaks, first of all, of eager expectation and of hope. Eager expectation, the Greek word used here is only used one other time in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 19, there he speaks of creation's eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And so the picture is creation uh, getting up on its tippy toes. This is what the word kind of makes you think of. And stretching out its neck and peering into the future for something that is coming that is absolutely certain. And in this particular case, in, in Romans, what it's talking about is all of creation is waiting with great anticipation, eager anticipation for you and I, to be transformed in the image and likeness of Christ. That's what creation is waiting for, okay? The completion of this salvation that God has begun in us and that he will complete so faithfully. In the, the, in the sense of Paul, when he speaks of eager expectation, he says, I'm eagerly looking up on my toes with my neck extended, looking at something that I know that is certain is going to happen. And what he sees at the very end of this is not just this stuff, the difficulties going away and things becoming better. He's seeing that he will not be ashamed of all that he's experiencing for the, for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And he says here that it's not only that he, he, there's an eager expectation of that, but there's also a hope. Now, what's interesting about this idea of hope is we have to understand it not in the way we use it. When I say, man, I really hope it doesn't rain today, what I'm saying is, I don't know if it's going to rain or not. Uh, I just hope for a particular outcome. When the Bible speaks of the hope of believers, they're not talking about a possibility of something happening, not sure of what's going to happen. It's talking about that we know what is going to happen. Paul says, my hope is that I know it's going to happen because my hope is based on the truth of God's word. This is what he's saying. So when you put the two things together, what he's ultimately saying is he's, he's saying that it is not only his eager expectation, but it is a certain hope that he will not be ashamed of any of the work, the sweat, the pain, and the sacrifice that he gave so that God would be glorified in his life here. He will not be ashamed for any of it, not a single bit. Paul shows us how God then is to be glorified. He says, in light of this, notice how he responds. Look at the word. 
He says, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, what he's talking about is he's talking about honoring God. He's talking about uh, glorifying God. Glorifying God and honoring God are synonymous with each other. Both mean ideally the same thing. The word honor there in the Greek literally means to make large. He's saying, he says, because I know that I will not be ashamed by my work and my sweat and my blood and my tears and my life and all that I do for Jesus Christ, because I know in the end I will not be ashamed because of all of that work, there's not even a possibility of it, then I will continue to do what I've always done, and that is I will glorify God, I will honor God, I will make God big in all that I do. And the way that you do that is you put away your own physical concerns and all these concerns, and what you do is you take the concerns of Christ and you champion them above yourself. That's what you, we do when we make him bigger than ourselves. This is why Jesus said, by the way, of John the Baptist, there has not been any greater man born of woman than John the Baptist. Why? Because here was his motto, he must increase and I must de- decrease. No man ever glorified God apart from Jesus Christ as John the Baptist did. So so this is the idea. They're honoring him. And so what he's saying here, what he's saying here is this. Is that anyone in anything, please look at me just for a moment. Anything you do for Christ, any suffering you experience on the account of righteousness, anything that you lose in this world, Anything that you might be made fun of or condemned of because of Jesus Christ, when it is all said and done, there is none of it that you will experience any shame for at all. Have you ever put your whole self into something before and the result, what you got out of it, there was a little bit of disappointment and shame? Has, has there ever been that? If you are a parent and you have taken your kids to Chuck E. Cheese you have experienced this very thing. You've gone to Chuck E. Cheese. You have dropped a hundy, all right? You've dropped a hundy to get a cup of worthless coins that you can't use anywhere else in the world. They have absolutely no value. There's no precious metal in it. And there are your kids, and they begin to empty that cup unbelievably fast. They're gone, right? Now, the whole point of the coin is to get a worthless ticket. Okay, that's, you need to know how this works. Okay, hundy, coins, worthless coins, and they're shoving them in, and they're trying to get as many coins as they can, and when they're little, they get no tickets, right? They come back, here's 50 cents, here's a worthless ticket, Dad. We need more tickets, which means we need more coins, which means we need more hundies, right? And then they begin to look at you because you're sitting there going, hey, the hundies, we're almost at mortgage level here, all right? We got to start doing something. So you begin to take over because you know what they want. They want tickets. So there you are, the champion of the family at skeet ball, and you are doing everything, man. You're just in the zone, and you're rolling those babies, and they're going up, and they're hitting a thousand every time, and they're and here comes those tickets, and you're sitting there, and the family's like, "Yeah, dad, go, dad, go, dad," and you're all wrapped up in it. Finally, hundreds of dollars later, you pick up all those tickets. Everyone's excited, and you go over, and they go, "You got to put it in the machine to get a little ticket. Let them count them." So you put them all in the machine, and you get done, and you have this huge number. 50,000 tickets, and you take it, and there's the family. They're all, like, around you, right? And they're all championing you on. Show them, Dad. Show them what's up. Yeah, I got it right here. Uh, You lay it down, 
right in front of that representative of Chuck E. Cheese, that official representative, and they go, yeah, how you like that? Sir, well done, good and faithful customer. And what does he do? They hand you a pencil with a monkey-tipped eraser. Yeah? Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and there you are, and everybody's kind of like, oh, oh, what about the radio up there? <laughs> Sir, you're not even close to a radio. You get a pencil, and you look at the pencil, and you're trying to enjoy it, but it, it's not even a number two pencil. It's a Chinese pencil built somewhere. That it's not even number two. You can't even use it on test. It's worthless. Anything we do for the glory and honor with our time, money, efforts, energies will never leave us ashamed or disappointed. Never. In, in fact, I think the opposite might be true. David Jeremiah, that some of you might listen to, and, and I really enjoy the gentleman. I don't always agree with everything, but that's okay, right? I mean, it, it's okay. And he, has, he, he draws attention in his commentary in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He, he says this, he says, he will, speaking of God, he's speaking at the end time, he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Either shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, we're familiar with that passage, and it's a wonderful promise. But what David Jeremiah points out in his commentary is that this takes place in a very interesting time. In chapter 21, it's after the white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, after he's already separated the sheep and the goats, and actually he's already gone and sent those who are uh, unbelievers uh, to hell for all eternity, which is very rough, but it's the consequence of sin against a holy God. And he goes, and then he takes the believers, and what he does is through fire, he burns up all they did and all the money that they were entrusted with and all the time that they had, and he burns it all up, and then all that is left is that what they did for the glory of God, for the expansion of his name, for the glory and honor of his name. And he says it's interesting because the wiping of the way of her tear happens after this. They were already in heaven. The tears have to come after this. And and, and, and he says, why in the world would be there be tears in heaven? And, and, and he makes sure that he explains this. It's not as though, th it's not that picture that, that maybe your Sunday school told you that one day you're going to stand in heaven and there's going to be big screens and every sin that you ever had is going to be show up in front of everybody and you're going to be humiliated. No, that's, that's not how it's going to happen. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has separated us as far our sin, for our, for us from our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more, right? So he doesn't hold these things against us. He doesn't sit there and go, hey, Jesus, you, guess what? You thought they were gone. <laughs> All right, he doesn't do that. It's not, it's not what Jesus does. It's not his grace. It's not his mercy. He says, then why the tear? He says, well, here is God rewarding us. In light of all that we've done with what he's given us and all the time that we've had on this earth and it's all been washed away and he's letting you see what it is that you did for the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, and the reason that there are tears is because some, as Corinthians says, will be saved as by fire, as by fire, but yet will suffer loss. What is the loss? I think the, the loss might well be just the full, clear HD realization the whole life in which we've lived was lived for something else other than the glory of God and the purposes of Jesus Christ. 
And I think in light of all of his grace and all of his mercy, that we look at that and we see almost next to nothing and we wonder to ourselves with all the time and all the money and all the energy and all the gifts that God has given us, how could we have accomplished so little in light of being given everything? Now, I, I got to say this. I don't know if that's theologically correct. There are theologians on both sides say, no, that's, that's not what the text is saying. Others that say it is what the text is saying. So I don't want you to go out here and say, this is how Brother Mike interprets that text. It's, it's not. It, listen, listen, I think whether that's how it works or not, I think the illustration is powerful enough for you and I to be able to sit back and understand. Whatever suffering, whatever you give, whatever you go without, you will not be ashamed for. You give and you go and you speak and you do for the glory of God and you will not be ashamed. Now the key for this, of course, is starting where we need to start and that is with Christ, a relationship with him. That you know Christ. And I don't mean know him cognitively, I mean know him as Savior, that you've placed the whole weight of your whole existence and life upon Christ. How do you know that you believe in him? You believe in him by entrusting your whole self to him and submitting yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. That's where it begins. So listen, I know some of you are going through great, uncertain times. What I want you to do is, it may just seem like Bible teaching, but the creator of God knows you better than you know yourself. Quit reflecting on the uncertainty. Reflect on the certainty. The certainty of what? The certainty of our future salvation. And the certainty that we will not be ashamed. And we will give all the honor and the glory and the praise to Jesus because he's the one who made it all happen. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you, and we love you, and we thank you for all you are and all that you've done. God, I pray that what happens, I, I love what Paul says in the passage when he says, because I know that I will not be ashamed. He goes on and, and it encourages him to keep moving forward. It encourages him. He says, that, that he goes, but that, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether in life or in death. Because we know what is to come, I pray for the encouragement of those who are suffering for righteousness' sake, right here and right now, to continue doing what they were doing, knowing that there's an end in sight and that it's all worth it. Lord, there's some that need to know you. Save them even now. Save them now. Let them call out to you for mercy and grace. Let them be saved. And let the rest of us be not ashamed right now. Let the rest of us reorganize and reevaluate what it is that we're doing and where our money is going and what our time is being spent on and allow you to evaluate that. Let us work on that. See where there needs to be change. And through the help, help, uh, help of your Holy Spirit and the light of your grace, let us be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? I'll be down here if you want to pray, or you can come to the altar and pray. Whatever it is, let's do business with God this morning.